For this episode, it was great to have Mike Allen in from Orlando, Florida. We talked about Mike's new book, Grounded in Heaven, as well as lots of other interesting topics. So you've, have you ever been here? I've driven through. Okay. That's it. All right. One of the questions I always ask people, I'll ask you as well, and that was, what was your first car? <laughs> yeah. A lemon. I bought a car that died within two years. Anyhow. I got a car late. When was your first car? Well, you didn't answer what it was, though. Okay. All right. All right. It was a right. Ford Contour. What is that? Um, are sure we recording now? Yeah. Oh, we are. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But it's all mellow. It's fine. It's uh, fine. Yeah. So I bought. We, we edited severely. So I bought a Ford Contour just before my senior year of college. Okay. I don't know what a Contour is. What, it, what year? It, it died. I think is a series. Okay. And maybe because mine died. <laughs> and I bought it used. I forget what year it was. And I, I did what you're supposed to do. I remember I took it to a mechanic to get it checked out before I bought it used off the lot. Right. Right. I'd like to have words with the mechanic. I don't remember right. Let's the find shop it. or name, but. Yeah. If you think within, of it, email me. We'll post years, it. Within two years, yeah, yeah. It was in the Dallas area. So and he with, said it was fine. Although two years for an old car, I mean, a lot uh, can happen. No, two years. That's still, though. I mean, a uh, lot could happen. I don't know. It wasn't that old. It was, all right. No, what was crazy was when it needed to be fixed, I take it into a shop, and the guy says, well, I don't deal with Japanese engines. And at that point, I think, wait, I, I'm bringing you a Ford Contour. Was it some It was a Ford, they, they and did? they had swapped out... A Mazda engine into the car. Oh, not Ford had not. Someone no, else. No, someone had. in the middle. So it just probably never really worked, and right? My guy who told me this was a sound buy and this was all. Oh, on the that he should have known. That obviously, I, it wasn't I would just think the, you'd <laughs> catch that. <laughs> it wasn't I just mean, that the muffler went bad or something. Right. It was like a different engine. Yeah, engine. Okay. yeah, running the wrong OS system on this thing, basically. <laughs> so, uh, so it died quickly and bad. Oh man, that's a bummer. I had a Chevy Sprint. Which was not made very I don't know long. A sprint. Yeah. Uh, it, well, again, it was it was three cylinders, okay. so it was like a tiny little attempt at super fuel efficiency. Coop. It was probably I think it was a hatchback. I think it was. What year was that? I should try to figure that out. Well, I want to talk about this book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So glad I did. Uh, Grounded in Heaven, Erdman's 2018, which we'd kind of talked about a little bit and I know had been done a while and you're waiting mm-hmm. on one of the chapters to be done. Right. But let, let's do what I like to do. And hey, hey, Siri, give me a random number between 1 and 160. A random number between 1 and 160 is 28. All right, so if you'll turn to page 28 and read just a paragraph out of there, see what you come up with. All right, yeah. Uh, The elaboration extends quite far, of course, but it centers always upon God. While Kuyperianism may be most noteworthy in the integrity of created reality, which it honors and upholds over against the recurring temptations of Gnostic or escapist metaphysics, eschatology, and ethics, Bavink argues that the unique feature of this and the wider Calvinist tradition is the doctrine of God applied consistently. He's not argued that the doctrine of God itself is distinctive, rather its consistent connection to and rule over all other areas of inquiry distinguishes this approach to faith and practice from all comers. For the Calvinist, all things recur to God. The neo-Calvinist insists that the novum 
of the kingdom is precisely this universal and ultimate recurrence. Christ is making all things new. Okay. Mm -hmm. So not exactly on the thesis of the book, which we'll come back to in a minute, but pretty close. Related to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to say something about that paragraph first, maybe expound it? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's a happy moment where I'm praising something in the Kuiperian and particularly in Bavink's theology. Uh, which is most of a, your life. Which is, is most of my crazy, life. Right? Which is good. Uh, the book is one of those moments where my expression of love takes the form of of a bit of argument about an area where I, I, right. I find there to be inconsistency and unhelpfulness. And so the, the book as a whole uh, is, is a bit of a tussle with my own tradition where I think trying to respond to dispensationalism, trying to respond to some eschatological escapism. Mm. Uh, Reform folks in the last century have sometimes overreacted, and they've overreacted by talking too high and too much and too central about the place of the resurrection of the body and the new creation Mm. to the exclusion of being with God, being made to enjoy communion with God as as the center of Christian hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way I sort of put it in the book would be to say, what should have been a productive reform from Kuiper and Bavink over time has sometimes become a parasitic reform. Um, I love that line where you said, every reform can be productive or parasitic. Maybe had a third category, I can't remember now if it was there somewhere, Um, but just that there's often a reductionistic overcorrection a lot of yeah, times. Yeah, and it, understandable for all sorts yeah. of psychological yeah, yeah. and sociological right. reasons. Uh, it, it's so common to think that there's one problem, one malady. Right. As long as we nail that, we're doing well. But balance and proportion and wholeness are so important. Right, right. Thinking scripturally, morally, theologically. So even Bavink, who generally is like a master of right. balance and wisdom, it seems. Right. right? Yeah, there, there are few spots where he comes off poorly in terms of being measured, viewing his opponents and, and being honest and fair to them historically, and then presenting a balanced, proportionate sketch of the whole counsel of God. I mean, I would say eschatology here in this respect and then the ethics it generates of uh, self-denial and asceticism, that's probably the, the single most difficult area or most problematic example of that in all his work. Yeah. Maybe you could say a little bit more about how it came about for you. Yeah. Um, obviously Tom Wright, Richard Middleton, it plays a large role in, in yeah. this. So you want to just say something a bit like sure. what are you reacting to? Right. You know, I think in a balanced way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the book was provoked by reading a, a recent book by Richard Middleton. I'd yeah. read earlier books by Tom Wright, who's sure. not Dutch Reform, but was heavily influenced yeah, in his early that. years in Toronto yeah. by folks in the Walsh tradition. and others, yeah. Right. Uh, and then by others in the more recent Kuiperian tradition. And uh, in many ways, that's my own world, too. Yeah. Um, but Middleton's book especially pushed me over the edge in terms of wanting to write something yeah, okay. up. Because there, it's not just that uh, you're avoiding speaking of something, sort of the, the center of our hope being being with God, but there was outright mockery of people who talked about that. Really, was it speaks it, of it, singing lies yeah. in church when people yeah, describe yeah. the hope of, of 
the heavenly joy of being in God's That's presence. even going beyond right a little bit. I mean, uh, right, right, right has moments where he gets, yeah. yeah, but you write it off as that's his yeah, panache. Yeah. No one's ever um, said this before. That's right. right. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, Middleton's book was just a really long polemical piece in that regard. And there's some good exegetical nuggets there. But he just castigates the whole tradition. Yeah. And when he actually, in an appendix, gives footnotes to what he's described as just the platonizing of the whole tradition almost from the beginning. All the footnotes are dispensational, modern, yeah. 19th and 20th century I thought that things. was a very interesting point you made. That and it's really a reaction to dispensationalism, but then they write off all of Christianity right. is this way. Yeah. And you trace some of the sources and found that they weren't saying what right. they were really saying. Yeah, I thought right. that was good film. And, yeah. and there's just an obliviousness to the fact that, yes, there's been a long discussion about in what ways do we jive with various platonic strands, which are diverse on their own footing. Right. Uh, and, and that's been running for a millennium and a half. That's right. not like a reformational novelty. Uh, that was a debate in the early church, in the medieval church. Uh, and so uh, to sort of pretend that they fell for things hook, line, and sinker, and thank God we're now historically minded enough mm -hmm. to know it, is just way too simplistic. Mm -hmm. So. God is the center of our hope. He's not just the one who gets you to your hope. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't yep. instrumentalize him. Yeah. Um, so you call it, very interestingly, eschatological naturalism, right. which is, um, you know, an interesting choice. Um, I, when I hear that, I think, well, of course, you, and you start with Taylor and Jamie Smith's helpful instruction to Taylor and the idea of the imminent frame. Right. And, and I do just think of the modern turn overall, which is the turn towards reductionistic naturalism, where everything becomes that. Right. I assume that was an intentional framing for you, right, to call it eschatological right. naturalism. Yeah, right. and there's some, there's some care that I've got to exercise there. I'm obviously not suggesting these folks right. are naturalists right, across right. the board. Right, right. Most of them are Kuyperian, Augustinian right, folks. Right. So regarding sin and grace and will, they're going to have pretty strong notions of divine action and even sovereignty, you know. Uh, mostly they get criticized for too strong a view of providence and election and so forth from right, others. Right, right, right. Um, so they're not naturalists in that sense that God doesn't act. But uh, when it gets to describing our hope, God exits stage right. Right. And the hope is what typically educated folks in the North American world or the Western world happen to already like. Right. World peace, right. uh, bodily health, you know, relational wholeness, psychological uh, balance, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and amazingly, Jesus provides the goods on what we already right. wanted. I'm, I'm trying to be targeted and say that Kuyperianism doesn't need to fall into this. Kuiper himself doesn't seem to. Right. Bovink does. And then more recent folks who are way less familiar with the mainstream Christian tradition. Definitely do, right? No, definitely okay. go in hook, line, sinker with gusto. Right. Uh, you know, and it, it reaches the point where they're mocking the theology and the hymns yeah, and prayers yeah. and the martyrs, which... Right. I don't, which is probably a good life lesson for all of us as scholars that if you're mocking something you're probably not being totally fair right and that's probably a good for across the board even right. the things that we would say we totally disagree right. with if we're mocking them we're probably not yeah showing and a, up in love, a good you know? proverb that's right. not a and it's not a principle that applies in all circumstances but if you're putting forward a theology that leaves rather undisturbed the desires of the wealthy and privileged and it leads to castigating the hopes of 
uh, black slaves or of early Christian martyrs. Which I'm sure Milton's not meaning to do that, right? Not meaning to, right. though at times even indirectly stating um, that you know that ought to raise all sorts of alarm bells. Sure. Interestingly, I mean, all the feedback I get from pastors and practitioners is basically along the lines of, uh, you know, Kuyperianism has given just lifeblood to investment in discipling yep, absolutely. women and men for the workplace. But there's always been this unnamed hmm. discomfort, hmm. and hmm. the book provides categories yeah, yeah. for giving framework to that well I mean let me uh, say I was absolutely thrilled to read it and after we get our coffee maybe I'll come back to as to how I think it relates to my own work but I'll just say I felt like it was really a model of care and balance and just at a really important moment you know to realize okay here we are there's all this good and mm -hmm. what I especially like I do like the idea of Christian humanism that mm -hmm. comes up just very briefly yeah. you mentioned it um, Ian Zimmerman and some other people. Right. I, I really like a lot of that stuff and I found it very helpful but I just felt like you sounded a careful okay but let's remember these other issues too right. you know the other side of the equation I just right. so I was really really glad I read it especially the work the book I'm working on right now it was going to provide a good balance for me. back to this how the book impacted me and just kind of mm. as a word of appreciation and also um, maybe some dialogue too you know I you've always been so kind about the my sermon on the mountain human flourishing book and you know blurbing it but also just encouraging me about it and we've had lots of good conversations so then when I started reading this book I kind of had this thought like oh crap like I you know that I could potentially fall under critique of this so then I had to really do some soul searching and think is that would I be fair to fall under this critique and I I my inclination is to say no that I don't think I fall into what you are rightly critiquing but what I really appreciate um, about what you're doing is I feel like the stuff I am arguing mm -hmm. me personally or maybe even people taking it beyond me could fall under the critique of what you're saying because what made me think is my my concern has been to dialogue with our own tradition evangelical reform protestant tradition about uh, and br and bring kind of the christian humanism back in right. and also bring in virtue again which is stuff we've talked yep. about before in a good protestant way that it does matter who we are and how we live in the world and, and then also that I do feel like, and this is the book I'm writing now, is that Christianity is answering the great human questions. It's right. a philosophy, it's not just a religion. It is a philosophy that's giving very sophisticated answers based in a particular metaphysic um, on the questions of what are emotions, how do we structure relationships, um, you know, what are, what are metaphysics, how do we know, all the grand philosophical human questions. So. So that's, I'm very passionate about this stuff and that's right. why I like Christian humanism. But then, so, so again, I just would love to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, just on those kind of projects, I'm interested in how they relate to your right. concerns. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think developing a notion of Christian humanism is absolutely ingredient to teasing out the theology of the gospel. You know, I'm struck the, the most important text for Jews and Christians in thinking about our hope being in being with God is Song of Songs. And Song of Songs describes how we long for mm. and we delight in God. We find God beautiful. Uh, we rejoice in entering his presence. We pine to the extent that we don't find him, that we run around the city and are searching. And, right, right. And, and there's this deep yearning for ever greater communion. And all that's true, but what's also fascinating is even there in this text that most celebrates our hope being in another which is primary, it also celebrates the fact that he delights in us and our particularity. He sings over those body parts in ways that are not just alarming to us because right. we're post-Victorian and that feels <laughs> sketchy in public, but but also because morally, I mean, we, especially those of us in the Augustinian or Reformed traditions, often think that if, if God's delighting in something in me, well, I, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a miserable worm, you know. I'm right, right. this misanthropic kind of notion. and Yeah, that's part of what I'm pushing and, against. And, I feel like if I that's think, all your anthropology is, right, you suck, then I think you're not reading the Bible. That's a crucial facet right, yeah. of, of anthropology, right. and you can't right. get anywhere without it. But uh, the, the goodness of the gospel is it's not just God tolerates you, but yeah. God actually graces you in such a way in creation, a new creation, that he sings over you, he pants for you, and in particular in specific ways. And of course, I don't know all the ways that would match the tower-like neck and the, uh, the you know, all the, the We'll just stop right there. We'll leave it there. <laughs> but uh, I do think specificity and particularity about being able to glory in uh, the human in as much as we are we are sharing in God's life. Right, right. Uh, or made his image. I mean, just start right there, right? And yeah. imaging is a great idea, right, th- right. But, but also that we're transfigured. Um, right. And that that doesn't make us something other than human, but it does bring glory into our very frame and being in Christ. And so humanism is really important, but uh, we've also got to talk about the Christian shape of what true virtue is what the good life is, what the good neighborhood is, the way Patrick Miller will describe sort of the public theology mm-hmm. of Israel and what early Christians were working out in their own way in a Greco-Roman society with lots right. of overlap with Stoics or yep. the other figures, but all that, right. also lots of contrast. Mm-hmm. But I think my project has been to try to kind of rediscover that because right. it's been part of my own journey of rediscovery of like, I feel like the overly Lutheran anthropology that I got was just, again, you suck. Like, that's the right. extent of anthropology. Right. And it was disembodied, right? Right, And it was right. almost entirely negative. I actually think this book fits really well with the book on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, I mean, some of those emphases of the Sermon on the Mount, as you think about humanism, something that would be a shared element would be going back to that Irenaean idea that the glory of God is found in man being fully alive, but we got to read the rest of the sentence. That, I love that. Yeah. Uh, that's not all he has to say, and and we can't assume we know what being fully alive means. Yeah, what does he say? Uh, I actually put that down as a note. It, I, it comes in beholding God. Yeah, man fully uh, alive consists of beholding so, God, right? Yeah. Right. Um, 
and, and all the ways that then radiates out. The loss of sort of God at the center of our hope, I think winds up with effectively leaving us with, with hope, but hope that looks like earthly comfort and peace and calm. And not surprisingly, that is not gonna motivate in the long run costly uh, love and sacrifice for others because precisely what you'd be sacrificing is what you're hoping for in the end. We've in many ways tilted to an eschatology uh, that asks rather little of us and, and can very easily justify precisely the kind of middle to upper middle class lifestyle that we otherwise are sold. Well, let me pivot and ask about another topic yeah. um, that you and I have dialogued a little bit about, and that is, and I think it touches on, on this uh, book too, but uh -huh. more generally, the relationship of biblical theology and yeah. whether we call it, call it systematic or dogmatic or constructive okay. theology. Okay, yeah, systematic theology is meant to help keep you from putting God in a box. Right, right. To help you be alert to all of scripture, to things that are going to keep you up at night, and actually it's gonna be heresies of various forms uh, that allow people to sleep well at night because they find intellectual closure and they mm. sort of leave elements of scripture aside or downplay them. Flattened. To find yeah, they're, they're, they're cheap yep. exit ramps mm -hmm. and systematics is meant to basically keep you alert to the breadth and That's the good. challenge of it all uh, and thus to the mystery and the incomprehensibility okay. at a deep level. I've been trained in settings where biblical theology was really valued and even at RTS where I teach because of our history and covenant theology in the Reformed tradition, biblical theology is an outworking of part of that yeah, in yeah. respect. A version of it. Um, yeah. I've been and am heavily involved in theological interpretation of scripture, which is a somewhat parallel move. In some and ways. In some, some ways, ways there are some differences, <laughs> but, but I actually think it's a parallel in terms of both biblical theology and theological interpretation are basically correctives trying to deal with what was perceived as a loss in the disciplines of exegesis yeah, and dogmatics. And Old Testament studies, yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, I, I think both have served good purposes. I think both can sometimes uh, fail to realize that they serve reorienting roles. So for instance, I think biblical theology uh, in many ways doesn't need to continue as a separate discipline because it has so done its job <laughs> that uh, we need good exegesis, we need good doctrine. Those are two, you need the narrow angle lens and the wide lens basically. And I think biblical theology has so shaped how people are doing both of those tasks yeah, yeah, yeah. in wide ways that the ongoing need for a distinct discipline is for my money almost moot in those settings. Yeah, yeah. And I actually think theological interpretation is probably well on its way to yeah, where that could, could be the that. case too. And that'd be fine too because it was not um, meant to be anything other than a corrective. A helpful retrieval right. and you know. And now the, the catch is biblical theology in its roots was never as clear about what the problem was that it was yeah. fixing. TIS has been much more specific. Yeah, so I, for good and for bad. It, you know, right. Because the early critiques were all it was doing was right. talking about it doing Method it. Right, and, yeah. Which better. I think it's gotten better now. I don't think that's... Right. But that, that means at a certain point, if you find your way out of those problems, you no longer need to keep yeah, doing that yeah. as such. I feel like that's kind of been um, the case for me. After my like 18-year journey in it or whatever it is, 
I feel like I don't even really think about it much anymore, but I'm forever shaped by it. You do you what know? you do, yeah. right. My so, sensibilities have changed. I'm not just doing exegesis right. as an historical study. I'm actually right. reading theologically. Right. You know? And, and uh, individuals and students and pastors will catch that on their own timing. So that, that That's right. has to keep being shaped. But the bigger question for my money is institutions and structures, you know, yeah, yeah. in the academy and the church. And BT and TIS have had just massive, massive institutional wins. Yeah. In terms yeah. of journals, yep, book right. series, monographs, conferences, uh, graduate programs, even up to the PhD level. Yeah. Uh, both of us would have studied in PhD programs yep. where that was a distinctive element. And yep. even if there's a vibrant conversation or debate about what that involves, that's a sign of health, not mm -hmm. a sign of, mm -hmm. of a lack. That's super encouraging thought. And, I think you're right. Things have really changed. And so at a certain point, the the persistent disciplinary yeah. division, I think, actually could become a detriment more than a help. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure we're there yet, but uh, especially with BT, that's my increasing sense huh. that there are a lot of people who think that once they get there, they've sort of reached the whole Bible apogee, and it leaves them short of actually doing doctrine, uh, and that's a danger. Um, because BT sort of becomes, a, and some and say it itself. should be a, a replacement yeah, yeah. for ST. Yeah, that's been my concern, uh, is that it, it, it becomes its own production that never engages with, well, whole elements that only come if you approach things systematically right. or, or dogmatically. Yeah, right. tends to not listen yeah. to historical theology, yeah, exactly. tends to not do comparative... And might even eschew it, might even right. know, mock it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so not surprisingly, yeah. you know, uh, debates about the doctrine of God, about Trinity and divine attributes yeah. in recent years. Yeah, uh, It's not hard to point to huh. people who've caused a lot of problems, even in the evangelical yeah, world yeah, yeah. on that who have largely focused solely on BT yeah. to the exclusion yeah, yeah. of wider ST yeah. in history. Yeah. Um, and that's not the fault of knowing BT, that's the danger of thinking that that is the be all and end yeah. all. Yeah. And even bad versions of BT that are, they're not wrong, but they're myopic. So I mean, how easily can BT simply be uh, the narrative of religion or the, the story of scripture? Yep. Which is one element. I mean, narrative's key. There is a big story. Uh, but how much more helpful is BT where it's it's genre-specific, it's yeah. paying attention to authors, to corpuses, to uh, all the various literary forms of scripture. Um, and, and the history of the church and its understanding. And, that, <laughs> and, and if, you, if you reduce things to story and narrative, it's amazing how metaphysically messed up you'll find you get pretty yeah. quickly. I mean, which affects the doctrine of God first, yeah, but then I think anthropology yeah. second too. And I just think the two things we absolutely need and in constant conversation are exegesis and dogmatics. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and again, just the narrow angle lens in of a dialectic always. A text right. and then the wide angle lens of the whole counsel of God and having a Christian framework of, yeah. of reducing all things to God, as the medievals would put it, relating them to God. Yeah, I like so, that. That's helpful. Um, 
BT helps at times with that. Absolutely. TIS helps at, at times with that, but those are... Kind of coming at it from two different sides, isn't it? Right. Yeah, and I think you, you can think in medical terms. They're like infusions in crisis care huh. when disciplines have gone go bad. Yeah, yeah. But the goal should never be to keep somebody in crisis care yeah. and keep them on an IV. One's giving platelets, one is giving plasma or right. something. Right. Eventually <laughs> you want to find your way right. to... Uh, physiological yeah. wholeness. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and so that's what I think we ought to be thinking about. Okay. While we're talking about theology, I want to just say something about John Webster's, uh, you know, role mm -hmm. in the next generation. I mean, for a lot of you guys, particularly a lot of my friends, he mm -hmm. was like a direct role. Right. But I mean, just more generally, maybe how how Webster's own projects and life might be helpfully shaping the future of evangelical theology. Right. You want to say something about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think uh, it's interesting. I remember when I was a grad student, here's an anecdote unrelated to Webster directly. When I first started going to ETS on the one hand and then AAR and SBL right afterward, right. there was a lot of interesting doctrine and theology at ARSBL. Of course, yeah, right. And ETS was an None. abysmal wasteland. Yeah, it, it's biblical studies only, right? That's, right. that's the joke about ETS, yeah. no theology. Right. right. It's and, getting better, thankfully. Oh, well, <laughs> and what, what, what I would say is now it is almost the absolute yeah. inverse reality. Huh. I have to search oh, right, right, far. Right, right. I'm thrilled this year there is one really good session <laughs> I'm excited about at AAR. And that's uh, really good. And that's and, rare, yeah, actually. Right, right. Yeah. Um, where there's a doctrinal discussion. There, there are biblical discussions that interest me exegetically right. at SBL. But in terms of actual systematics, there's almost nothing anymore. And at ETS, there are tons yeah, yeah. of young and mid-career folks doing great stuff, yeah, starting yeah. program units. Yeah, that's great. And, and I do think, actually, there are a number of people who play a key role in that, folks like Kevin Van Hooser yep. and others. Fred Sanders. And um, but You and Scott, but, come on. Well, no, you guys deserve a lot all of those, all, of, all of us are younger and derivative in ways. But uh, John played the, the biggest single role in terms of training a lot of people directly hmm. and then having a wider impact either as readers or, or in other roles, um, modeling a, a kind of evangelical dogmatics hmm. that was serious about being biblical and exegetical. Uh, he called for that more than he sometimes did that, and that was the nature of his training, but he really tried to do that, mm -hmm. and he uh, consistently called for it and wanted people to go beyond what he could do in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and then also who just lovingly engaged in a deep way across the Christian tradition. Yeah. Uh, not in a fearful manner, not in a naive manner, but in a serious, yeah. patient way. Uh, and and he was remarkably good at that. Over in the pocket <laughs> over there, you'll see, I always have guests open an envelope with a random question. You can choose one of those. I, I just pick and one. Then, What's one interesting fact about your ancestors? Oh, I've got a bunch. Okay. Uh, I have a mother who does genealogical research, okay. so I know okay. more than the average person. Okay. So point number one, if you go to the uh, Cowboy Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, Okay. There are many and people celebrate, and right. who wouldn't want to right. do that? There is one room you don't want your ancestor to be in, and that would be the cattle thief room. 
<laughs> and I have a great grandfather who is so honored. He's in the cattle thief room. He would go down. He's to, so successful as a cattle. He thief. would go to Texas and steal tons of cattle and lead them up to where he lived and raise my grandmother in Montana. <laughs> Um, oddly, eventually he abandons her and her mother and the family, and so he's not cool with our family now. But he amazingly went to Minnesota, started another family, and became mayor. He is Jean Valjean, basically. And, like, became, um, a, became a good guy? Beloved then... mayor. My mom found the tomb there in a graveyard in Minnesota. He is regaled as just this remarkable guy with this lovely family there. And probably none of them knew about the cattle. That the, is crazy. The abandoned family. What was his name? Or do you want to say? Uh, we'll, we'll leave that okay, to right. the side. You, there are only so many people in the right. cattle thief. Okay, all right. So if you our guests want to go there and trace it out. Okay, dude, this has been great. That's fun, man. Hey, you've, I, you've had sunglasses on the whole time. And now I we have. get to see. I just you. took That's them off. That's all right. Now we got to redo the whole thing. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media and especially our YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon account if you want to support us that way. Thanks again. We'll see you on the road.